I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. My name is Sarah, and I'm one of the the priests on staff here at Church of the Cross. And tomorrow, our family takes a quick vacation to Waco. (laughs) Even though it's a short road trip, I am already preparing myself for the inevitable call from the backseat of the car. I feel sick. Okay, kids, youth, anybody who's in here, what do your parents tell you to do if you feel sick in the car? Do they have any advice? Parents, you're free to supplement, free to remind them. What? Open the window. That's a good one. What? Oh. Look straight ahead. Yes. Put the game or book down. <laughs> it's a favorite in my household, part of it. But yes, outside of special medication or different things, the most tried and true aid to motion sickness, whether in a car or on a boat, is to look at the horizon, right? The sickness is in part because your brain, your eyes, your ears, and your body are not all receiving the same signals, and it's making you sick. So when you look at the horizon, it helps your brain make sense of what each part of your body is feeling. And the sickness, hopefully, gets better. Our passage in Philippians, in ancient Philippi, the the ground was moving under this budding church. They were fairly new to faith in Jesus, and here comes suffering. Paul's writing his friends to help them remain steadfast. He's encouraging their present faith, telling them to keep their eyes on the horizon as things move, to keep their eyes on Jesus. The rest will come into alignment. But Paul's also aware there's a lot of advice going around about how to follow Jesus, how to bring faith and suffering and daily life together in alignment. I was looking up just to make sure it was true that we're still supposed to look at the horizon, right? I've been told that all my life. But of course, you have to consult Google occasionally to make sure that's still what we're saying. And it is. <laughs> but when I was doing my research, I also found a lot of other advice, including like these really funky glasses. Like say you're reading and you get car sick. Well, it's putting on these glasses that have like four holes in them. I, it's very strange. But there's some sense of like, oh, we just keep coming up with more and more advice, right? (laughs) There's just more ways to overcome this so that we can still look at whatever it is we want to see. So in Philippi, there's a group who's kind of offering these other solutions. It's a group that's known as Judaizers, who, though they believe Jesus to be the Messiah, also believe that anyone who wants to follow him has to also follow Levitical law, follow the Torah law including but not limited to men and boys being circumcised. And the language Paul uses here for the Judaizers, he uses these words that I think we're all a little uncomfortable with if we're honest, right? Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Um, While they are startling, it's kind of a play on words in a sense because all those negative titles, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, That's actually what 
Jews were calling Gentiles, right? It was a way of saying, you're outside of what is going on. You're acting like a pagan. You're outside of what God is doing. And so Paul, in this sense, is using their terms on themselves. Paul flips it and says, you, you've got it backwards. I'm saying, look at the horizon, and you're saying, look at the floor. And as we look at our passage today, we'll consider with Paul a life of following Jesus. Specifically, what is lost? What is gained? And how might we know Jesus? First, what is lost? What has Paul lost? He says he's lost his confidence in the flesh, which has a number of meanings, but Paul focuses in on a few things. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He highlights these privileges of birth or inherited status. Paul was, in the Jewish community, born belonging. It's easy to see some people that way, right? Especially when we're not feeling belonging. We look over and we're like, that person was born belonging. Maybe some of us share that story. Maybe we feel like we were born belonging, however you might define it. Um, For you Stranger Things fans, this is the Steve Harrington of season one, right? The popular guy who seems to have it all. You initially dislike him for it, even if he's one of your favorites now. But Paul doesn't just count as loss, his belonging, his Torah study, his zeal, his law-following achievements gave him a kind of airtight grasp on life. Paul had such an airtight grasp, he felt confident enough to persecute the church. He not only belonged, he believed. He had the kind of feelings of belonging and certitude that are so tempting as catch-all cures when life is hard and complicated. When my stepdad, who is the man who raised me, when he passed away a month after Drew and I were married, my sense of belonging and certainty evaporated. A new marriage, a new job, not the one I wanted, but one that paid the bills, a brand new small group, a new church, a new city. My closest friends were far flung. Marriage was not easy. And I showed up to my first post-college small group and just wept. People there were very kind as I broke down crying, Um, but belonging was still not a word that I felt applied to me in this season. Add to that that Louis, my stepdad, passed away without any known, to me, profession of faith. The certitude, the belief that had come pretty easily since encountering Jesus at 15 was gone. I wouldn't say I lost my faith in Jesus, but I suddenly felt like I didn't know him. What could I depend on him for if not this? There are some types of belonging and believing that rather than help us engage more deeply with pain, more deeply with faith, insulate us from both pain and faith. 
Paul says that kind of belonging and believing is worthless. That's the type of belonging and believing that aims to protect us, to shield us from someone like Jesus, not to draw us nearer to the God who dies on a cross. But we understand that kind of pull, don't we? We feel it in us, the the pull to be morally or politically or existentially certain. In addition to providing us a fixation, it insulates us from the losses that come with compassion and pain and confusion. Maybe it allows us to be dismissive or superior, which is a really efficient way to live. We experience it at our jobs or in our relationships where we want to belong and hold our own, maybe even excel in ways that assure we will always have people there for us and achievements to make us feel stable. When we lose our confidence in the flesh, we count as loss our old insufficient containers of belonging and believing. But what is gained? Do we get new, better containers of belonging and believing? Yes and no. Yes, and that there is a profound belonging to God and his people. Yes, there is a revelation of the kingdom of God and the indwelling of the spirit that shapes our believing. But no, this isn't exactly the direction Paul points us in. Paul doesn't say, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of the Christian worldview. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of the creeds. He doesn't even say, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of love. Rather, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In knowing Jesus, there is a different kind of belonging and believing, and it doesn't come by privilege of birth or by an airtight grasp on life. And the end isn't merely belonging and believing. The end is knowing Jesus. We can't miss that in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters those who would become his disciples, his friends, he calls them first. This is especially in the Gospel of John, right? To come and see, right? Draw in. In his invitation to the 12, as he's calling them out, the first thing scripture says they were to do was to be with him. That is the first thing in their mission. Jesus could have taught in the style of catechisms, questions and answers that attempt to give a framework of the ins and outs of the faith. It can be really helpful, but Jesus didn't do that. His teaching didn't aim at someone giving their intellectual assent to ideas and formulations. Jesus aimed at drawing people closer in relationship with himself. He taught in parables that would invite listeners to come near and ask questions. And then when someone did ask him a question, he often asked two more. He continued the conversation, not because he didn't know the answer, or that he was being withholding with the answer. Quite the opposite. 
He was giving more of himself. He was allowing himself to be known. He wanted them, he wants us, within proximity to know him and experience his good and loving reign. Paul affirms that this knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth, gain worthy of the loss of all other stability. We can hear Paul saying with an earnest passion, I know him and I want to know him. I can't help but personally feel very taken by Paul's takenness with Jesus. Just as Paul was so effusive in his affection for the Philippian Christians, his friends, he is unabashedly taken with Jesus. His losses are very real. We remember he writes from prison. And yet the depth of his attachment to Jesus is deeper. It's intimate. So we come to that final question. How might we know Christ in this way? Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We have four phrases here that make a kind of knowing Christ sandwich. The top layer, right? The bread is the the power of his resurrection. And the middle is filled with this kind of participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, with the bottom layer being attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And we're gonna, we're gonna start with that middle for no other reason than this. Name a sandwich. Club. Ooh, that's a tricky one, I like that. <laughs> that's a great one, I love it, that's the foil. <laughs> I'm so glad I asked, BLT. <laughs> Any others? Yeah, turkey, tuna, club, I love that. Sorry, I'm gonna have to enjoy that for a little bit. Um, in general, <laughs> though club is the foil, we name a sandwich by what's in the middle. You would not ask somebody, say, what kind of sandwich are you having? And they say bread, (laughs) right? You'd say turkey, egg, club. (laughs) So we're going to start with the middle, but also because there is no resurrection without death, right? Just like the middle makes it the sandwich, there is no resurrection without death. So let's begin there. Participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. When we consider Jesus' sufferings, we are reminded of many ways in which we share similar pains, similar wounds. The loneliness of Christ, the rejection or abandonment Christ experienced, the hatred Christ endured, the downward mobility of Christ so well attested to by Paul and the Christ hymn of chapter two. Participation in his sufferings is not just enduring these things. It's not just merely slogging it out or waiting it out. It's to be animated by Christ's companionship, to choose self-giving love, unto loss and pain and death. And I know this is obvious, but Paul is not writing after his martyrdom. 
Seems pretty clear. He's not writing this about participating in the sufferings, participating in the death, after some big, once and for all, sacrifice. He's writing about participating in Jesus' death in the daily choices of enduring in love to draw near to Jesus. And I imagine there might have been some part of Paul that, after he was shipwrecked, thought, I want to go home. Or when people told him he wasn't a very impressive speaker, he might have wanted to defend himself or quit. Instead, he chose to talk about Jesus. He chose to endure in love for Jesus' sake. And in those places of unsteadiness, without shelter or comfort, Jesus was there with him, made known to him. Paul shared in Jesus' companionship. When we draw near to someone who is hard to love, or when people draw near to us who are hard to love, I want to encourage us to do it not because it's the right thing to do, but consider doing it because you'll get to know Christ. Similarly, when we sit with loneliness, our own or others, rejection or hatred, loss or confusion, I want to encourage us not to seek the convenient containers to rush us through the discomfort. That person's to blame. If everybody would just do this thing, I'd be better. If I did this thing, I'd be better. But to stop and look for Jesus there. How is he making himself known? How is he accompanying you? Knowing Christ isn't the proverbial, to use Paul's term in verse 8, garbage sandwich. The cross is not made more palatable by the bread, but is otherwise awful. Participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, is like a steak sandwich or an excellent banh mi with pork belly. Or for my vegetarian friends, the squash sandwich from Food Heads. <laughs> Participation in his sufferings is part of how we increasingly know Christ. This is not what we have to go through before we get to the good news. This is part of the good news. That we can know Christ, be formed like him in inexplicable self-giving love, in companionship with the living God, in suffering. We are called Church of the Cross because of this very invitation. We want to participate in the sufferings of Jesus, becoming like him in his death. May we, as Church of the Cross, be a good news, cruciform people, keeping company with the crucified Christ. But just as a sandwich is referred to often, not always, by its middle, a sandwich also ceases to be a sandwich without the bread. And we turn toward the second part of what makes this a uniquely Jesus endeavor, resurrection. To know, Paul writes, the power of his resurrection and later attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
While the latter speaks of a time to come, the former, the power of his resurrection, is both something he regards as already made manifest and something presently available. Just as we know Christ through participation in his sufferings, we also know him because of our encounters with the risen king and his kingdom at hand. We know him because of our engagement with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Lazarus couldn't stay dead when Jesus called him to come out. And similarly, I'm sure there's a lot of swimming going on this summer as my just taking a guess based on the 100 degree weather. If you were to take a ball tight with air, freshly pumped, and take it to the bottom of a swimming pool, it can't stay down. And we bind ourselves to Jesus by joining in the call to love him and love like him, even unto death. But when you are bound to Jesus, you are bound to see salvation in and around you. Similarly, as you might not have gotten to pick out your cross, you also don't get to often pick out the resurrection. So we keep our eyes and ears ready for the resurrection that is at hand. Near the beginning of our series, uh, way back in May, and for those of you who aren't yet with us, Father David invited us to share stories of God's rescue with one another, to consider the often ordinary places where we've seen the ball at the bottom of the pool rock it to the surface and splash us in the face. We see it go down. I don't have what it takes. And then whoosh. I looked into their eyes and I saw Jesus and tried again. Goes to the bottom. I felt so out of place, anxious and afraid. And whoosh. A worship song came into my head and I knew I wasn't alone. Or maybe for Paul, I'm in prison. <laughs> and whoosh. This is advancing the gospel. And Epaphroditus is with me, caring for my needs. I love those praises, those resurrection stories from Paul in particular, because neither of them was uncomplicated, right? Earlier in this letter, we learned that uh, the gospel is spreading, but it's also people preaching out of false motives, right? So it's this kind of mix there. And same with Epaphroditus. He's here caring for my needs, but then he got really sick, and so I had to care for him and now send him back, right? It's, it's a complicated moment, but Paul still holds on to the resurrection stories, even when they aren't clean cut. Even if Lazarus might die again, we still hold on that he was raised. What our passage this morning adds on to these resurrection stories is that the resurrection, while part of our present and future, isn't the horizon, that we fix our eyes on. We rightly long for and expect resurrection. We rightly tell stories of resurrection, but let us not miss that the deepest aim of these stories, the place where we set our faces like flint in the midst of a moving world, the focus of our eyes is on knowing Jesus. By God's grace, may we, Church of the Cross, Live as a people who consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And may we together know the power of his resurrection 
and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.